Tonight we started talking about why you exist. And all of creation exists to display and to declare, show and to tell the glory of God, the greatness of God. And you and I, as, as God's creation, can do that in a way that no other part of creation can because you and I have been made as his image. And the first way that God told Adam to do that, the first way he created him as his image, and the first thing he says to Adam in Genesis chapter 1 is what? Anybody know? The very first thing God says to Adam. What is that? Fill and multiply. Be fruitful, right? Everyone talks about the multiply bar, right? Everybody loves the multiply bar about sex, right? Before the sex comes, be fruitful. Everyone sees the relation between those two, right? I know how to be fruitful anyway. But be fruitful. That's the very first thing he says. Is be fruitful. That's the, the primary mission that you have as images of God on this earth. To be fruitful. And yet, our sin, because after Genesis chapter 1, comes Genesis chapter 3. And sin enters into the world and it changes everything. But God had planned for that. That was God's plan. To allow sin to enter into the world. To create a need for Jesus. And for Him to come. And to, once again, restore us you are, you are born again when you become a Christian. So that through Jesus, through our marriage to Him, we can do what God made us to do. We can be fruitful. So no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what area of life, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's friends, you are called to be fruitful. And hopefully passages like Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, come, start coming to mind or or Peter that we looked at yesterday, the things that keep us from being fruitful. We looked at three foundational truths last night. Number one, that God is the cause of our fruitfulness. That He wants us to be not just fruit-bearing, but to grow, to increasingly become more and more fruit-bearing. So John 15, He proves this. Second truth is that Jesus, our relationship with Jesus, is the way that we become fruitful. It's our marriage to Him. It's our union with Him. We, we looked at Colossians 1 and we saw all some, some of what He is. And so through our marriage to Him, our union with Him, we become more and more like Him. And as we become more and more like Jesus, the one that we, are, we have been pledged to, the one we have been promised to, we become more and more fruitful. And there's going to be that day. When he comes back, you know, the song that we sing, the church will come together and we'll sing, you're beautiful. And that'll be, that'll be an amazing day. I hope it's today. Honestly. I mean, wouldn't it be, it'd be a great place to be when Jesus comes back, right? <laughs> for him to come back and for us as his bride to be part of that chorus that sings to this world about the beauty of Christ. You know, it's not just a future day. That will be a future day. That can happen today. Your fruitfulness is part of declaring the beauty of Jesus. Because when people see your fruitfulness, when they see your Christ-likeness, they say, wow, that fruit is beautiful. What they're saying is the one who is causing that fruit, the one who is pruning that tree that is causing that fruit, the one who planted the tree, the one who is watering the tree, the one who is causing that tree to grow and bear fruit is beautiful. And that's God. 
And so us as Christians declaring the beauty of Jesus is not just something that is a future thing. It is, but it's also something that is a present thing. It can happen today as you display fruit to one another. The third truth is that the Spirit is using community to grow us in our fruitfulness. And so we have God who is the cause of it. We have our marriage to Jesus. That is the way that he is doing it. We have the Spirit who is using our community. He's using us to make us more fruitful. So you're not in this process of becoming more fruitful by yourself. You're not in this process of of change by yourself. We're all going through this process. Every single one of us. And there's, there's... There's a good part about that too, right? Because if you're the only one who needs to be changed, then it looks like change is a negative thing, a bad thing. Because everyone else doesn't need to be changed, but you need to be changed. But if we all can agree that we need to be more fruitful, if we all understand that that we need to be helping each other, then when somebody comes and tells me about my sin, I don't react negatively to them. I'm thankful that they are helping me see the ways that I am not being fruitful, so that through the Holy Spirit, I can become more fruitful. But if, if we think that our change is, is just me, it's just an individual thing, then when somebody comes and tells me about my sin, then I usually react negatively to that. I say, well, what are you, who are you to tell me that I need to change? You need to go work on yourself. Right? So God is the cause of it. Our marriage to Jesus is the way that he does that. And the Holy Spirit is using community to do that. And we all need that. Because we're, we saw in Second Peter, we're all blind. We all forget the gospel. And so your job, your responsibility to your brothers and sisters in Christ is to help one another remember the gospel. I need you to help me remember because there are parts that I forget. How do I know that I forget the gospel? Because I sin. All of our sin is because of our forgetfulness of the gospel truths. So therefore, you've got to help me remember those. I need to help you remember those. We do that in different ways. But that's what our role as brothers and sisters is. To remind one another of the gospel promises of Jesus. And so, what we're going to talk about this morning is the way that God causes our fruitfulness to grow. And that's, we saw it a little bit in John 15. It's it's the pruning piece. It's the element of, of suffering. You know, which is God's primary tool that he uses to cause us to be more and more fruitful. Open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Old Testament, one of the prophets. That's after Psalms. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. So if you open up to your middle of the Bible and go to the right, you'll find Jeremiah. And in chapter 17 of Jeremiah, it gives us a little bit of a, a picture of this process. That we're going to be talking about. Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited solitude. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream, 
and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So we see some, some pictures in these verses, right? What, what, are some, what are some metaphors, what are some pictures that we see here in these verses? which is caused by what? What's the dryness caused by? By the surrounding desert. By the surrounding desert, right? There's, there's heat, right? That's, I mean, typically desert places. Anybody ever been to the desert? Yeah? How would you describe the desert? Hot and dry. Hot and dry. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, it's like hot and dry, right? And it's difficult for anything to be green and to grow there, right? Because it is so hot, because there's so much heat, right? And, and so when you go to a desert, you really don't see too much fruitful vegetation there at all, because there's so much heat. And so you see here, there's, there, you see this picture of a shrub in the desert, right? And there's so much heat that it doesn't, it doesn't produce anything good. But there's another picture as well, right? What's the other picture in these verses? The tree planted by water. Tree planted by water. And its roots go into the water. And what? They go, deep. they go deep into the water, right? And the result is, is fruit. And so you see a couple, of, a couple of pictures. You see the heat. You see this one shrub in the desert that has no fruit. It's thorns. It's thistles. And you see another tree that has roots into the water that grows and produces fruit. And so you have heat, and you have thorns, and you have fruit. And that's really good. Really, over the, the remainder of our time, that's kind of a picture that we're going to be talking about. And I've got, uh, I got some paper here. Hand out to give you an idea. I like pictures to help me think. Thank you. You're welcome. So we're going to think about the pictures in these verses. We're going to think about the heat. We're going to think about the thorns. We're going to think about the fruitful tree. And notice, what is the difference in verse 7? What is the difference between the, the tree that is the shrub in the desert that does not produce fruit and the tree that is well watered and produces fruit? What does verse 7 highlight as the difference? Getting messy. The blessing of the Lord. The Lord. Right? And so it is, it is the blessing of God. It is the man who trusts in the Lord. And so really, in, in, our, in our picture here, you have a third tree, which is the cross, which represents God, which represents all of his blessing to us in Jesus Christ. And so what we have is the heat, which is the suffering of life that God uses. Things that are small parts of suffering, maybe some bigger parts of suffering. What, what, what is some suffering that you have had in your life or that you maybe have heard in other people's lives? Whether they're just maybe small, small little bits of suffering. General suffering or suffering for like God's sake? Or uh, just, just general suffering in, in your life. I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, I mean, a very small, insignificant, not insignificant, 
a very small part of suffering is, is, you know, my wife was planning on coming with me here, and the day before we leave, we get a call that my mom is sick, and she could not fly down and watch our kids, and so my wife had to stay. I mean, is that, is that major suffering? No, it's, it's minor suffering, but it's, she, was, I mean, she was still very disappointed and very sad that she was not able to come, and so there's, there's an element of suffering there, right? What are some other maybe smaller parts of suffering? Um, I think when you're in school, sometimes you have a test or something, maybe it's university, you have a okay. test and you can finish it or you get a bad grade. Yeah, there's a, there's a, the, the pressure of school can be an element of, of suffering, right? Sure. What else? If you run, you catch you run, and then it will be so much fun. What else? What are some other smaller ways maybe that you have suffered or that you've heard of other people suffer? Illness or pain. Illness or pain, right? Somebody gets sick, somebody gets hurt. There's an element of suffering in that, right? What else? Is it maybe something you, you want to have but you just can't get it? Like if you say, I want to have this car, but perhaps you, know, you, can't, you can't get the car. And that's just example. Maybe. <laughs> Potentially, I mean, there's, there's, there's a, maybe an, an unfulfilled desire, right? A desire yeah. that you have that, okay, all right. Friends leaving, yeah. People transition, right? The ladies are about to move back. There's an element of, of suffering to saying goodbye and having to start over in a new place or resuming life where you've been. Um, yeah. Marriage will provide moments of suffering. Not <laughs> small. <laughs> some small, some big. New job, new environment. New job, new environment. Yeah, I mean, all, all those. All church. There's so much church. It's true, something. Maybe when you have to listen to David preach, you know. <laughs> 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 when you have to preach. Or when you have to So, all of our life, I mean, if you would stop and, I mean, some of you suffered when you ran up the hill today. Yeah. <laughs> all right? <laughs> I think people suffered getting up this morning. Yeah, some of you. Started to get up to go running, but then you were suffering too much until you went back to bed. Uh, no names. I <laughs> Some of you suffered by not sleeping well last night. So I mean, there's so many different, different ways in which suffering is a part of our life. Um, many of them small. Some of them big. Right? What are some? What are some maybe bigger forms of suffering? Part of the ways. Probably. Lots of what? Loss of family or friends? And my grandfather died um, just a few weeks ago. Um, and he was, so I, I had four grandparents, as most people do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was, he was my third grandparent to die. I've got one grandfather left. Um, and so going through the pain, it was, it was my mom's father and my mom's mother had previously died a few years back. So my mother is without parents now. And there's, there's suffering to that. There's other forms of suffering that are that are big as well. I mean, we had one gentleman in our church who recently found out that he has he has cancer. Um, one lady in our church who it was um, about two years ago, she came back from a mission trip and was feeling was feeling ill. She was young; she was 43. Um, great lady. She was a wonderful disciple in our church. Great great heart for ministry. Um, Came back from a mission trip in June and 
was a little sick and just thought she caught some sort of sickness in Zambia where she was and went to the doctors, couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. In October, they told her that she had lung cancer, stage four. And, uh, and she was dead and nine months later. Um, you know, and there was a point in time where she thought that it was gone and she was healed. And, you know, she was told in October she had cancer. In January, she was told that it was gone. And then um, by, the following, by the following June, she had passed away. Suffering. I mean, and you hear about it all the time, right? I mean, in the news. I mean, you can you can look at any news website and see suffering all over the world. There is nobody who does not know suffering at some point, and we all do many times in many different ways. And so that's that's what God is using. For. That is His tool to prune us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have the heat. You have the you have that thorn bush though. You know, and, and the thorn bush are the sinful responses to suffering. Um, what are some sinful responses to suffering that you can imagine? Anger. Anger? Yep. What else? What are some sinful responses to suffering? Hate. I'm sorry? Hate. Hate, yes. Sometimes people turn away from God. Okay, yeah. Bitterness and frustration, getting mad at God. Yeah. Very true. False pride. False pride. Selfishness. Selfishness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> what we're going to talk about today is really heat and those sinful responses that it's producing. And then tonight we'll talk about the good fruit that suffering is, is meant to produce. And, you know, when it comes to that element of heat and, and suffering and those, I mean, just to give you a quick illustration of both the good fruit and the bad fruit that comes from suffering through the same person. A couple of stories that you are probably very familiar with. David and Goliath, for instance. Right? Story of David and Goliath. Everybody familiar maybe with that? Mm-hmm. Right? You have David who is um, he's the youngest, he's the youngest of, of many brothers, and so he goes, and he's in a, his brothers are part of the Israelite army, and he's gonna go check up on his brothers, and there's this giant that is his name is Goliath, and he is on the opposing army, and he's been he's been making fun of the Israelite armies. He said, Hey, you Israelites, send one man out to fight me, and whoever wins, wins the war. And so this giant comes out day after day, just taunting the Israelites, making fun of them. And nobody's willing to go out and fight. David comes, little guy, and uh, says, why won't anybody go out and fight this guy? I mean, don't we know who our God is? And so he goes and you know, gets his sling and a couple of rocks, and he goes up, and uh, Goliath sees him coming and starts laughing at him. And David says, don't you know who my God is? And he puts a rock in his sling, boom, and strikes him between the eyes, and he falls dead. Gone. What's the heat in that story? Yeah, somebody's waging war against you and taunting you and making fun of you and over and over and over again. That's the heat, right? And yet you see the good example of David and his faith in God his belief in God, and there was good fruit that came from his belief in God. The good fruit was victory in a very real way, right? Same guy, David, several years later, he was now king of Israel, and (laughs) he was now king of Israel, and instead, usually kings go with their army into battle, um, but he decided he was going to stay home and relax a little bit. And so he sent his army off into battle, and he stayed home. And one day, he was sitting on top of his, uh, in his palace, and he sees a beautiful woman. 
who's taking a bath in the name of Bathsheba. And she was married to one of his soldiers, and he sends for her, and she comes over, and he sleeps with her, and he gets pregnant to cover up his, his affair with her. He arranges to have her husband killed, um, which is a wonderful thing for a king to do, right? Um, but here we have the same guy with a different situation, still heat, right? The heat in that situation was his temptation. His temptation, his sexual temptation with Bathsheba. And yet, instead of his belief in God that produced good fruit from that heat, instead it was his sinful desires that produced thorns, produced sinful responses. He's having an affair with Bathsheba, arranging for the murder of her husband. And so you see the same guy in a different moment of heat, and you see the, the other cycle go on where it resulted in thorns in the th- and, and the thorny bush and the result of that. So it's just an example of, of those two cycles going on. Let's talk for a moment when it comes to the heat. So three things I want you to know about heat, about suffering. Number one, we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's saying, hey, suffering is a part of life. Everybody. Don't be surprised when you suffer. Everybody suffers. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 8. This is has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Romans chapter 8 is probably the best chapter in the entire Bible. So if you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it even better and memorize it. The whole chapter, yes. Um, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 20. Look at what Paul says about the broken world that we live in, starting in verse 20. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So you see several phrases that, that Paul uses to describe this world. It's subject to frustration, bondage, decay. This is, this is all of creation. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world where people get sick. We live in a world where weeds grow where they shouldn't. We live in a world where there are storms and forces of weather and nature that, that kill people. We live in a world that is, is filled with things like racism and, and hatred for other people. We live in a, in a broken world. And when you live in a broken world, there is going to be suffering. That is, it is a reality of life. That's the first truth. We live in a broken world. Number two, God knows about our suffering. God can identify with our suffering. Turn, if you would, to now to the book of Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 88. When it comes to the idea of suffering, 
There's some people who think that God just kind of sits up in heaven and is kind of looking down at us. And he's just a very far away God who does not really know about our lives, who does not identify with our lives. But God knows about our suffering. God can identify with our suffering. Psalm 88 shows us God's ability to identify with our suffering. As I read this, I want you to, to, to look at what phrases there are that talk about a life of suffering. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws down near Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in, so I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call to you, Lord. I spread out my hands before you. Do you work wonders from the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in abandon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgiveness? But I cry to you, in the morning my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast down my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath is swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become my darkness. Tell me, what do you see there? Tell me about how the writer of this song feels. Horrible. Horrible. It feels pretty horrible, right? What do you see? What are some phrases, some words that you see? He feels like he's in the darkest places and he's really low. Yeah. Very low. He feels like he has no friends, that he's been abandoned. God has turned his back on him. What else do you see? He's trapped. He's trapped. Yeah, he feels trapped. There's no way out. He feels close to death. He's close to death. I mean, you've probably never felt that, I'm guessing. Maybe you have. I, I don't think I have. I mean, that's a, that's, an, that's a deep suffering. To feel close to death. What else? Yeah, I'm sorry, it feels, it feels empty. Yeah. Does, does this psalm end on a good note? No, it doesn't, right? There's, there's nothing where he says, but the Lord lifts me up out of my trouble. And you, don't, you don't see that. But this is, this is God's word, keep that in mind. This is not just something that a man made up on his own. God's word something that God spoke to this man that he wrote. So God, God knows our suffering. He can identify with your suffering. And these, these aren't just words that were true of this man. These are words that God himself has experienced. Right? I mean, Jesus, you could read through this, and Jesus experienced this kind of suffering. 
Right? As he hung on the cross, he felt abandoned, close to death, and he did die. All of his friends had left him and walked away from him. Even his heavenly father had, had turned his back on him. So God has experienced suffering. He knows our suffering. So we live in a broken world, but God can identify with us. He himself has experienced suffering. So the third truth is that he uses our suffering. Right? If you look in Psalm, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 1. So turn to the New Testament. Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. One. Philippians chapter 1, yes. God is... God is using our suffering for a reason. It's not just something that we deserve because we're sinful. He has a purpose for it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, says this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. For it has been granted to you. The word granted there, the, the, the Greek word for that, is, is usually the word that is translated as grace. So what Paul is saying here is that God has graciously given you suffering. He is graciously giving you suffering for a reason, for a purpose. Because he wants you to see your need for change. He wants you to see your need to become more fruitful. And in order for you to think you need to be more fruitful, we need to see our, our, our lack of fruit. We need to see our unfruitfulness. Because oftentimes, you're not really convinced of your need for something until you see that you don't have it. Right? If, if you are, oftentimes, we don't need, take something very, very simple, food, right? What's the way you know you need food? And your stomach tells you, right? It's, it's empty. <laughs> Who made that noise? <laughs> Is that the way your stomach grumbles? <laughs> you might need to go to a doctor and have them check it out. It's not normal. <laughs> it's because of all the seeds you're eating. That's yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> so, that's, so when our when our stomach when our stomach grumbles, right? Then, then we know that there is a lack of food, and so we need food, right? What's the way you know that you need money? Empty pockets. Or you look at your checking account and empty checking accounts. Yeah, I, need, I need money, right? So it is usually the lack of something that shows us, hey, I need, I need this. And so what God is doing in our suffering is He is showing us our lack of fruit. He is showing us our sin that is there. That is leading to our, our unfruitfulness, our sin that causes the thorns that he wants to take and turn into fruit. And the way that he does that is suffering. For instance, glass of water. If this glass of water got hit, water comes out. 
right? Why did water come out of the glass? Because it was in the glass. Because it was in the glass, right? But most people would say water came out of the glass because you hit the glass. You know, and, and oftentimes we think that it's the suffering that is producing our sinful response. Why did I get angry? Well, I get angry because this person said this to me. Right? Why did I why did I get mad at God? Well, I got mad at God because this bad thing happened. No, it, it, we often blame our circumstances. We blame our situation. We blame our suffering. When in fact, the reason why water came out of the glass, because water was in the glass. And God has to show us through suffering that there is, that there is sin in us that needs to be transformed, that, that needs to be changed. Sometimes when I get home, I walk in the house, and it's been a hard day for my wife, because our kids have been especially disobedient. Right? And sometimes their disobedience results in me getting frustrated with them. Now, why did I get frustrated? Is it my kid's fault? That's, that's my tendency, right? That's, that's what I would like to believe. That's their fault that I got frustrated. But the reason why I got frustrated is because of my sin, because of my heart. And so the anger in my heart, the frustration in my heart that I displayed towards my kids, it's not my kids' fault. It's my own sin. But God is using my kids to show me my sinfulness. And when I see my sinfulness, then I know that there's something that needs to change. There's something that needs to be different so that instead of the thorn, sinful responses you see on this page, what happens is more of the fruitful responses. Because my kids are always going to be disobedient. Right? Probably for the rest of their lives in some way, shape, or form. If I'm trying to wait for them to become better kids so that then I'll respond in a better manner, that's not, that's not real fruit. No matter how they act, no matter how they respond, my response to them should be fruit-bearing, not a simple response. So when it comes to this element of heat, let me show you some examples from the Bible. Turn to the book of Numbers. So I know it's Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, so the beginning of your Old Testament. I know we're flipping around a lot in our Bibles, probably more than you want. But I want to do that because I want you to see that what we're talking about is really what your whole Bible talks about. It's not just from one small part of your Bible, it's from all of Scripture, this idea of God making us more, more fruit-bearing. We've already seen in John chapter 15 that it is God who does pruning in our lives, right? And he causes this, this heat, he causes this suffering to come so that we see our sin and we see our need for change. We see our need to become more fruitful. But there's, and there's some ways that, that we react poorly to suffering, that we react wrongly to suffering. And in Numbers chapter 11, we see, this is the story of the nation of Israel. And back in Exodus, they were slaves. And if you've read the story of Exodus and Moses and, and crossing the Red Sea, you saw God free them from slavery. And he's going to take them to a promised land. He's going to take them to a land that he's told them, I'm going to give you flowing with milk and honey, a wonderful place. But between Exodus and between the end of Deuteronomy or Joshua, they're on a journey. They're journeying through the wilderness. They're wandering through the wilderness. And Anytime you're in the desert, it's typically a time of suffering. And so we see some different ways that they react very poorly to suffering. Numbers chapter 11, in verse 4, 
It says, Now the rabble that was among them, this is Israel, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cumbers, the mountains, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing but all this manna to look at. Bunch of complaining, whining people. Right? What's one way they are reacting to their suffering? How are they reacting here to their suffering? Moaning and whining, right? What are they wishing for? They want to go back for the good old days. Oh, we could go back. Right? They, they, they're longing for the past. Right? And that's, sometimes that's our reaction to suffering. When suffering comes, we're like, I just wish I could go back to, to the way it was. Right? Flip to Numbers chapter 14 now. So just a few chapters ahead. So in chapter 13, they came to the edge of the, of the land that God has, had promised to give them, and they send in some spies to kind of check it out, to see if the land was good. And the spies come back, and of the 12, they sent 12 spies in. Ten, ten of them came back and said, we can't do this. There's giants that live there, there's no way that we can conquer this. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, oh, we can do this, God said we can do this. The people, unfortunately, listened to the ten instead of the two. And in chapter 14, they said this. Then all the congregation raised, this is verse 1 of chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back. Again, how are they reacting to the suffering that they were looking at? What's the reaction of Israel? Fear. Fear, right? Fear of the future. Mm -hmm. Right? And, so, and that's another way. When suffering comes, sometimes we say, oh, I want to go back. Sometimes when suffering comes, we, we have a fear of the future. I, I can't go forward because this might happen. Right? Flip forward in another few chapters, chapter 20. So chapter 20, same people, same problem. And in verse 2 of chapter 20, Now there is no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses. They fought with him and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought us to the assembly of the Lord? Into the, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? That we should die here, both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? There's no place for grain or figs or vine or pomegranates. There's no water to drink. So what was the people's reaction to suffering here? Yeah, maybe. What's our? Anger, rage, bitterness, right? blame, right? Moses, this is your fault. I can't believe you did this. Why did you leave us here? Why did you bring us to this place just to die? Right? And that's another reaction that we have to suffering. So sometimes in our suffering, we just want to go back. 
Sometimes in our suffering we are afraid of the future. Sometimes in our suffering we are, we are just bitter. We are mad. But you know, God was doing something through this wilderness. God was up to something. And that's, when it comes to suffering, that's the question we should ask. God, what are you doing? God, what is it that is, that is going on in my heart? What are you trying to teach me through this? Instead of just wishing to go back, instead of being afraid of the future, instead of being, instead of being angry at, at, at the present, we should ask, God, what, what are you trying to grow in me? How are you trying to cause me to be more fruitful through this suffering? And so when it comes to this idea of heat, God is causing this heat for a purpose. He is causing it for a reason. He's helping us see our need, that there is there's unfruitfulness in us. There is sin in us that is causing us to be unfruitful. And suffering helps us see our sin and helps us be convinced of, I need to, I need to change. And that happens when we see our, our sinful responses. When we, when we are bitter, when we blame others, sometimes we react to suffering by just becoming numb and trying to, trying to avoid it. Trying to, trying to escape it. Sometimes we, we just give into it. And, and we, want to, we want to fulfill those, those sinful desires. And all those ways are things that are responses of sin in our hearts. Now, one way that some people try to fix those is just by saying, I need to stop that. You know, if you become bitter, you say, I need to stop being bitter. If you um, become frustrated, you say, I need to stop being frustrated. Right? If you become, if you are blaming others, yeah, I need to stop blaming others. The trouble is, is that doesn't, that doesn't fix anything. Because the reason why we respond sinfully is because of our hearts. And so if our heart does not change, then you're going to keep responding sinfully. So it does no good just to say, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. That's, that's just a temporary remedy. Because unless your heart changes, you're still going to do it. It might look a little bit different. But you'll still keep producing those sinful responses to suffer. So when it comes to this idea of, of the thorn bush, there's two things that you need to know. Number one is that your behavior comes from your heart. Your behavior comes from your heart. Your, your behavior just shows you what's going on in your heart. If you're driving a car and the warning light comes on, the, the check engine light comes on, right? What does that light tell you? What does that warning light tell you when it comes on in your car? There's something going on in the engine, right? If that light goes off, does that mean that your car is all of a sudden better by itself? No, not necessarily. It could still be very wrong, right? It's broken too. broken too, right? So when it, comes to, when it comes to our behavior, when it comes to our actions, when we see wrong behavior, when we see sinful behavior... We can't just say, well, I need to stop that sinful behavior. We need to say, my heart, my heart needs to be different because our hearts rule our behavior. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. So Ephesians, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. It's right before Philippians where we were. Philippians chapter 4. I'm sorry, Ephesians. We're starting in verse 17. 
this. Now I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. Right? What is you see down in verse 25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, who remembers one another. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, give no opportunity to the devil. Let in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good. So in, in verse 17 and 19, you see wrong thinking in verse 17, right? No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And you see in verse 19, wrong desires. They have given themselves up to sensuality. So Paul is saying, because of your wrong thinking, because of your wrong desires, you have many wrong results. Right? What are some of the what are some of the sinful results of wrong thinking and wrong desires that you see in these verses? <coughs> you see greed in verse 19, for instance. Mm-hmm. Greedy to practice impurity. What are some of the other wrong desires? Or what are some of the, the wrong results that you see in these verses? Things that he's telling you need to be different. What does it say in verse 25? Not to lie anymore. Not to lie. Alright, so lying is a result of wrong thinking or wrong desires. What else? The wrong kind of anger. Wrong kind of anger, right? Wrong kind of anger. In verse 28, stealing. Verse 29, corrupting talk. So these are the these are the thorns. Stealing, corrupting talk, the wrong kind of anger, impurity. These are all the things that we see, right? When somebody is, is, is talking to you in a corrupting way, in a wrong way, when somebody is stealing, when somebody is lying, those are things that you see. And you can't just say, hey, stop lying. Stop talking that way. Stop, stop having that kind of anger. What has to change is verse 17 and 19. What has to change is your thinking and your desires. And when you're thinking your desires change, then the things that you see will change. No longer will there be anger, stealing, corrupting talk, lying. But instead, there's going to be good fruit. But that's, that's a lot of the time, that's the way we react to suffering. A lot of times, suffering produces this kind, of, this kind of stuff in us. And what God is trying to show us is that we are people in need of change. We need to become more fruitful. You are meant to help one another be more fruitful. Which means that when you see sin in somebody else, you, you need to tell them. You don't need to say, well, I'm a sinner too. I have, I have no right to tell them they sin. Right? And that's sometimes what we do. If, if somebody sins, we're like, well, I sin today too. Why should I tell them that they sin when I'm a sinner too? That's exactly what the Holy Spirit has put you here for with your brothers and sisters. You should want to help them see their sin. Not so you could feel good about pounding them down and and making them feel horrible about themselves. Because you want them to be more fruitful. But your heart 
rules your behavior. All the behavior that you see, all of your sinful actions are there because of your sinful heart. That's the first rule. The second one, and this is where we'll stop, is that your heart is always going to be worshiping something. Your heart will be worshiping something. Look at Romans chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 1 says this, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give him thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So you are always worshipping something. There's never a time when you're not worshipping. It's just a question of who or what are you worshiping. You will either worship the creator or you will worship creation. So when it talks about the idea of, of thorns, when you, when you look at this picture of thorns and you see the bad fruit that comes from the heat, instead of saying, okay, I just need to stop doing this, what you need to ask yourself is, what am I, what am I worshiping? What am I believing that is then causing these thorns to happen? What am I believing about my desires? What am I believing about what I think can make me happy that is then causing me to react in sinful ways whenever this heat comes? Because according to Romans 1, everybody is a worshiper. If you worship the approval of people, for instance, then when somebody, when somebody asks you, hey, did you remember to do that thing that I asked you to do? And you think in your mind, well, I did not do that. But if I tell them the truth that I forgot that, they'll, they'll think badly of me. And so therefore, what you do is you lie. Uh, right? It's a sinful <laughs> response. Uh, I'll get right to that. <laughs> and you run home and you do it real fast. So technically it wasn't a lie because you got to it right after that. But, but you lie. And the reason why you lied is because you were worshipping the approval of that person. That person mattered to you. Their, their approval mattered to you. If... If power matters to you, right? then when it, comes to, um, when it comes to your relationships with people, you are going to treat them in a way where they know that you have power over them. So you're going to manipulate people, you're going to um, maybe hold a grudge against them, because you want to have power over them. You want them to feel like they owe you something. Right? And what you are worshipping is power. If you worship comfort, if you believe that my life only my life only matters depending on how comfortable I am, then maybe you're going to just look for the way you can make the most money. 
It doesn't matter if it's a good way or not, or if it's a simple way or a holy way. You're just going to make the most money you can, even if it's maybe stealing, because you are worshiping comfort. So your heart is always going to be worshiping something. The question is, will you be worshiping the creation, or will you be worshiping the creator? And based upon that question, it will depend on whether or not you have the... The bad root, the bad sinful heart that produces thorns, or whether or not this other process can happen. Whatever rules your heart will rule your behavior. And your heart is always worshiping something. There is an old uh, old dead preacher. His name is Thomas Chalmers. And he, he preached a sermon that talked about the idea that in order for your heart to change, you cannot, just, you cannot just tell yourself to stop sinning. Because the reason why you sin is because of your love for something. So in order for your heart to change, a bigger love has to drive out the smaller love. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He has given us a bigger love. He is the bigger love. That can drive out all of our sinful loves. That can cause us, instead of having bad fruit, to have good fruit. But that's what God is using heat to show you. That is what he's using suffering. He's using suffering to show you the ways in which your heart needs to change so that you can become more fruitful, which is what he told us to do. The very first words that he spoke to Adam, be fruitful. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go to small groups. And, uh, and I'd like for you to talk about two things. Number one, if you feel that's whatever whatever comfort you have with people in the group. Talk about maybe some suffering that has happened in your life. And maybe even some, some suffering that you can think about where you had sinful responses to that suffering. And talk about maybe some of the beliefs in your heart that caused the sinful, thorny responses to that heat, to the suffering. Question? Yeah. Uh, one question. Like the first point where you said the behavior comes from your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. What if when someone does something that makes me angry or causes anger in me, do I expect that, I mean, it causes anger in me and I don't respond or like I try to not sure. express, yeah, express it and then to calm down and not be angry anymore? Or should I expect to not be angry at all? Or if I put my heart in, like with my heart changes, yeah. should I be expecting that I shouldn't be angry in the first place? Yes. Or is it already... Okay. So, Ben, you're never going to be free from sin, right? Until Jesus comes back. And so there's, there's a process in which when you do have that anger, that, that we confess that. You know, when you're angry at somebody and you go and you confess that to somebody and you ask for forgiveness of that person, and that is, that is something that is very honoring to Jesus. That, that, that is a display of, of the gospel. And so that's a, that's, a, that's a way to take sin and actually have Christ's honoring truth come from that. But the hope is that your heart will change so that if that happens again, if that exact same thing happens again, instead of getting angry, you would have a different response. So that's, that's the true hope, is that, is that that same situation, instead of producing the thorns, would produce good fruit. And that good fruit would then 
pour back into that, that situation. So it's a very good question, though. So the hope is not just that that you, you, you know, to oppress sin. To oppress sin, yes. The hope is that that good fruit comes from the same thing. Good question. Any other questions before we pray? Um, just to that, because uh, when you read in Ephesians 4, verse uh, 26, and it says, in your anger, do not sin. There can be a, a righteous anger, yes. Okay. Um, and, and you kind of alluded to this question earlier. There's there's a kind of anger that is an anger that is more about the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. Most of our anger is, is about us. You know, and it's because we're offended. It's because uh, because something that we are some, something sinful that we are worshiping has been prevented from us. And because we can't get what we sinfully want, we get angry. Now there's a kind of anger. That is an anger direct. That is an anger that is more about Jesus and about His honor and it's about His glory. And that's that is a righteous anger. But you have to be you have to be very careful because I think that is not normal for us to have that kind of anger. But it is possible. Um, so good question. Any other questions? There's a confusing look upon your face. I'm just thinking because, like, sometimes I I personally think that there are some things that are. <coughs> Um, so naturally wrong yeah. that being mad at that is just normal. But then, what do you do with your anger? Also, is you know the outcome of these of your heart. Like for example, abuse. Like if someone abuses you, like that's so wrong. Like, God considers it wrong. So I think that could be a righteous anger. But what you do with it, like do you go and repay, or, or, or what? What? How do you deal with that? Sort of thing. Yeah, but so if you, so the question of why are you angry? Because in, in the question of abuse, right? If, exactly. if, if it's more of a well, I think that, um, that that the that the right let's say you have a child being abused, mm-hmm. right? And, and your anger is more about hey, all children you know, are should have the right to to have a good life and a, and a happy life, and, and and it's your anger that's more. About that, you know, that's I don't know if that's a good kind of anger. Now, if it's an anger that says, "Hey, this person is a creation of God," and so when you when 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 you abuse somebody who is a creation of God, then that is a reflection that is a dishonor to God Himself. That's more of a righteous kind of anger. So, I think there's a more worldly way to maybe still be upset by child abuse, but but it's not necessarily a righteous kind of upsetness because it's just more it's more humanistic. And, and it's in its orientation versus anchored to hey this person is a creation of God they as such that life is precious um, abortion for instance I think there are some people who are opposed to abortion for very good reasons some people who are opposed to abortion for more worldly reasons you know it's not about hey this is a creation of, of God's life so that would be maybe another example of it looks the same anger on both sides but is it attached to the honor of God is it attached to the holiness of who Jesus is and what he has done. Um, that's, I think that's the biggest question as to whether or not it's a righteous anger or, or not. Um, yeah. And if it is a righteous anger, how would that, how would that look like when you brought it up? That's a great question. Um, if it's a righteous anger, it should, what would it look like for righteous anger to produce good fruit? Yeah. That's, that's ultimately the hope, right? Yeah. And, and, and good fruit should... 
again, when you see when you see the cycle, see both of these, it, it's a it's kind of a circle where our bad sinful responses they they impact the original point of suffering, the original point of heat. But also the good fruit can also pour back into that. So what you're talking about is if the, if it is righteous anger, what would it look like for righteous anger to produce good fruit that would then be able to, to impact the original point of suffering, the original point of heat. And there's there's a lot of answers to that. There's not, I mean, it's kind of difficult to play the what-if game. Um, but when it comes to good fruit, the question is, is the good fruit something that would lead someone to a greater awe of who God is and greater respect for his, his power and his righteousness and his holiness? Because I think ultimately that's what good fruit should produce in someone. Is, is an awe of God, is a, is a love for, for who Jesus is. And so, can you, so a righteous anger, for instance, let's you know, just play the what if game. If you, if you had somebody who, um, who abused children, right, who, who was violent towards children, um, and, and your, your righteous anger about that situation should lead you to action. Right? It should lead you to do something. Not just to say, oh, that's a horrible thing. I'll pray for you. Yeah, I mean, you have, to, you have something more than that. But I would say that maybe a sinful response would be to go and for you to say, well, hey, you hurt children, so I'm going to hurt you. Right? I mean, that's, that's not, that's probably not something that's going to lead that person to, to praise God and to have a greater awe of who God is. But going and seeking to, to explore with that person, okay, why are you doing this? What is it? Again, this person, if he's being, I don't know why we're talking about violence to children, but if, if this person is being violent to children, there's something going on in his heart that is, that is causing those sinful actions. So to just go to that person and say, stop being mean to children, that doesn't, that doesn't do anything. But to talk with that person about what is going on in your, what is your heart worshiping that is producing that behavior and seeking to try and figure that out, because it's probably a power power thing, that's why a lot of abuse happens, is because this person worships power, and the way that they feel powerful is by abusing other people, whether it's verbal, you know, abusing somebody with your words, abusing somebody sexually, abusing somebody violently, abuse happens oftentimes because of <clears throat> somebody's love for power, and so to be able to go to that person and, and talk to that person about their love for power and and why they are seeking, why that's a wrong way to satisfy that, and where is power truly found? You know, that power is truly found in who Jesus is, the one who creates all things, like we saw last night, hold things all together, and show them the true source of power, right? And help them see how their love of that power that is producing those sinful responses is a, is a wrong behavior and, and therefore a wrong thing to worship, and show them the right thing to worship. That would be action. Right, that, that so righteous anger should produce that type of gospel sharing type action. If it's just wanting to wanting someone to feel the same hurt that they've caused, I don't think that's a righteous type of, of fruit that comes from righteous anger. Um, so, good question, though. So again, when it comes to your small group, talk about some suffering that's happened in your life. And if you are brave enough, you talk about some of the sinful responses that you've had to suffering. And maybe talk about what is it that your heart was worshiping that caused those sinful responses. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for being gracious enough to cause us to change, to want us to change, to want us to be more fruit-bearing. And I pray that as we, as we talk about some of this, that you would help us recall those moments of suffering that, that you have brought into our lives for good reasons, and yet some of the, the sinfulness that has been exposed by the suffering we've gotten. So would you cause us to be confident enough in who Jesus is and in his love for us that we could be honest with one another and we could open up our hearts to one another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.